Hello and welcome to this episode of Leukemia Chatters. My name is Charlotte, I'm Patient Advocacy Manager here at Leukemia Care. This month is Rare Disease Day, so we wanted to highlight Kez's story. Kez was diagnosed with myelodysplastic syndrome, a rare blood cancer, when she was young, despite MDS mostly affecting older men. She described the trials and tribulations of getting a diagnosis, of active monitoring, her transplant treatment, and also how COVID-19 has affected her. Thanks for joining us, Kez. Uh, you're welcome. Hello, everyone. So, yeah, I thought it might be nice um, for our chat, Kez, to start sort of right at the beginning of your story and how you sort of came to be diagnosed with myelodysplastic syndromes, or MDS, for those who aren't familiar with the acronym. I mean, just tell us a little bit about the signs and symptoms you had and how long it took for you to work out what that meant, because <laughs> I know it was quite a long one. It was really, and, and I think, I mean, the, the very first signs of it, I think when I was in my 20s and I, I'd gone to see uh, my GP because I was feeling just a bit tired, really. Um, and she then asked me if I was drinking too much, as you do with young people. But the reason why she was asking this was because I had very large red cells. She said my cells were macrocytic. And that's unusual in someone of my age, unless someone was drinking too much. Um, and I said, that, that certainly wasn't the case. Anyway, we just shrugged that off and I carried on. And then I was a, a very fit young person. I used to play football quite seriously. I played for Millwall and for Charlton. And uh, I was by now in my 30s. And I've always been very quick running and I used to play on the right wing, which meant I could, you know, I felt like I could go like the wind kind of thing. But what was happening is these young kids coming up behind were catching up with me, uh, these defenders and stuff. And I thought, do you know what, I, I just, I'm, I'm a bit out of puff. At first I thought it was just because I was getting old. But eventually I thought, no, this, um, I am feeling a bit more tired. So I went back to the doctor's. And then they did more blood tests and that again showed the large red cells, but again, it showed a very mixed picture. And this kind of went on for about two years, prodding and poking. I had a brain scan at one point because they thought I might have a pituitary tumour and it was very bizarre. But the one consistent thing was this low-grade anemia and the large cells. So they eventually gave me a query MDS diagnosis and then I was sent to King's who did more bone marrow biopsy, and they gave me the definitive diagnosis. That was in 2000, so that was a long time ago. Yeah, so about six years in total. Yeah, and because they just weren't looking for it in young people at that time at all. I was just going to say, you did. it sounds as if you had some really classic symptoms. So in the story you've done for us previously, you talked about bruising as well as the, the fatigue you mentioned and, and yeah. all sorts. But So pale breathless, uh, unexplained kind of night sweats, yeah, yeah, bruises. It, it was, and, and it, but none of them were debilitating totally in themselves, but you just put the whole picture together and you just feel a bit off. That's how I used, that's, what, that's how I went to the GP. I, I just feel a bit off. I'm not myself. I'm not running as fast as I normally can. Yeah. I guess the challenge for them is they hear people say they feel a bit off all the time. Exactly. It's just working out what the off the off is. Exactly. I mean, were they quite honest with you that it was a puzzle for them, you know, in terms of working what it was? Or... Well, they, they were. The very first phone call I had from my GP, I was sat at my desk. And you know when a GP rings you, it's never a good re reason. Normally it's because something's not quite right. 
and, and this woman who'd known me for a while, she said to me, Kez, are you lactating? And I said, I beg your pardon? <laughs> and, and she said, are you lactating? And I said, why, why would I have breast milk? I haven't had a baby. And, and she said, because your prolactin is sky high. And that doesn't make sense. And your calcium's really low. That doesn't make sense. So, so they did say to me, it doesn't make sense. And they sent me to the endocrinologist. And the endocrinologist said, this doesn't make sense. It's like two out of the four uh, thyroid things weren't quite right. But the rest of it was absolutely perfect. That didn't fit their picture. So there was all these things that would, to use my phrase again, just a bit off. But eventually I got into the right department. Once I got into haematology, that's when things started to really take off. Once they got the bone marrow biopsy and they could really see what was going on, then they forgot about all the rest of the complicated picture and started honing in. And that was good. And did they describe it um, when you finally were told it was this MDS thing did they describe it as a cancer at the time so I know it's sort of only recently been recognized as a as a cancer but how was it described to you no they didn't describe it as a, a cancer back back then and um I don't think they really said very much a blood disorder maybe a blood disorder and that's what I used to say to people oh, I've got a bit of a weird blood disorder and would shrug it off but when I started to research it because they didn't give me, uh, you know, any material at the time. Because you know, 20 years, well, 22 years now, isn't it? There wasn't some, the websites weren't there. The support groups weren't there. Uh, it, the data was unreliable and anecdotal rather than scientific. But when you did start researching it, you did find some of the um, more scientific, and you, you saw that there was this, you know, the average survival is two to five years and you think, well, what does that mean then? And so then you go back and you start asking questions about, you know, what that means. And what does watch and wait mean? What, what are you waiting for? Yeah, because I, I was on what they call, used to call watch and wait, active monitoring for, for a while before I needed my stem cell transplant. But at the beginning, they just don't tell you much and they don't tell you what they're waiting for. But I'm a person who likes to know what's going on and it won't phase me. I'm not a worrier. Just give it to me straight and I'll go off and deal with it. That's the best thing to do with me. The more information you give me, the more I like it, the better it is for me, actually, because I feel then that I've got some control over what's happening to me because I understand it. Yeah, it's interesting. Every, I, I come across people who um, actually have been on watch and wait for or active monitoring for quite a long long time who don't want to know no that's right yeah interesting how different people deal with this concept in, in different ways but I certainly would be on your side I'd want to know what, what are we waiting for I'm, I'm maybe I'm just an impatient person yeah it's interesting I think I learned it from my mum because my mum was I don't want to know so even when my mum was dying, the consultant said to me, Kez, would you explain what's going on to your mum, please? And so I did, as, as he'd asked. And she, she sat there and then she didn't say anything. I held her hand and then 
he he then said a few things to her and I said, Mum, do you understand what we've just said to you? Do you understand what Mr. McDonald's has, has just said? And she, she just closed her eyes and she said, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to know. And that was it. And she never asked any questions and she didn't really didn't want to know about anything. And as a hospital chaplain, I've been at the bedside of many, many people who have been going through tough times or as they approach death or as they die. And um, there, there is again, there is definitely a split between those that want and those that don't. But I think there's more people on the wanting to know side than burying your head in the sand kind of thing. Um, but I think it's important to know your patients well enough to know what one they fall into and what they can cope with. Because even the most resilient people might not cope with really bad news if they've not got someone with them, for example. So you do, you do need to know your patient before you kind of, you know, really go for it with uh, all the all the worst case scenario stuff with them. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And one of the things that always comes up for me when I'm talking about active monitoring with people is how it's a bit con- counterintuitive to be told, oh, you've got something really serious, but we're not going to do anything about it. And is that something that you experienced as well? Yeah, because when when you're talking to other people and they say, well, what treatment are you on? None. What, what do you mean none? How can you have something so serious and yet you're on no treatment? And so, yeah, it's, it's very difficult for people to understand, I think, that especially those early years when things can be relatively stable for a long time. But what would happen with me, most people have a kind of gradual decline um, as things kind of taper off. With me, it was more like <laughs> up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. So I would suddenly bottom out. All my counts would totally disappear into my boots I would end up with sepsis. I would be in hospital and have, you know, loads of treatment for for sepsis or and whatever the infection was that had caused it. And then I would gradually climb out of it, and my counts would go back to what was normal for me. And then I'd trundle along, and whack, they'd all disappear again. So it was not the t- typical picture that you normally see. So they they did keep scratching their heads, and a couple of times I said to them, "Are you sure you've got the right diagnosis?" because they were scratching their heads saying, this isn't typical. One thing that I think struck me with reading a little bit before we came to speak was that when you go on active monitoring, I think you assume everything will be fine because you're not being treated, but that wasn't your experience. And was that quite mentally difficult to try and align this active monitoring approach with uh, things are a bit difficult? And Because you say you had quite a few you know, physical side effects from that as well. I mean, how how was that whole time for you? Yeah, I learned a lot about myself during those years, I think, because I think when, when you play sport at a serious level, you're used to pushing yourself. You know, if you get a bit of a knock, you run it off kind of thing and you keep going. And that was my attitude to, to the MDS, you know, just dust myself off and keep going. And I worked full time and I worked stupid hours sometimes. And I don't think I did myself many favours in that respect because of pushing myself too hard. And, and maybe it was because I didn't hear or didn't accept the seriousness 
of what was really going on because that wasn't drummed into me in those in that early stage. So I just kept pushing, 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 pushing. And maybe that's why I, I you know, also contributed to these really big drops when they came. But it's very difficult, I think, to because it, it, it's like you're coming to terms with something that's quite massive, but in a void because there's these long gaps between when you see the consultant and have a chat and you might not see the same one more than once, especially when you're in the, the different clinics. Once you get to the transplant stage, it's different and there's different consistency. But in the early days, I, I, I didn't always see the same consultant each time and trying to explain to the consultant, this is not right for me. When I looked so healthy and fit, it, it can be it can be and also I'm quite stoical and I deal with things really well I when I have my bone marrow biopsies I don't need sedation or gasoline or anything I'm you know I'm, I'm used to I, I don't know I've just always been that way I've got a good pain, high pain threshold and I just do get on with it I just grip my teeth and I get on with it and so they would see that rather than the bit underneath the facade that I had where I was actually struggling to stay awake in the afternoon at work at times and you know beginning to take the lift between floors instead of going up the stairs because I was finding I was getting a bit out of puff they didn't you know they didn't see any of that so I, I think that's that's what that's one of the things that I, I would want to say to anyone who's newly diagnosed make sure you pass on all the details of what you're experiencing because it might not be connected but it just might and but they're the ones who will sit will will be able to say if you put it forward that that's because x y and z whereas if you don't if you just assume that this is normal and you don't say anything they're going to think it's not happening rather than you living with it you know and it's, communication is and, and get, getting good communication with your, your doctors is a vital tool in your keeping your health as best as it can be, actually. Working in partnership with the doctor. Don't leave it all up to them to notice. You've got to participate too. Yeah, absolutely. I guess that links a bit to my, my next question. So I was thinking about how obviously MDS is fairly rare in, in the grand scheme of things. Did that make it challenging for you to to cope with as well in addition to sort of the not being treated thing I, I was thinking in terms of if you're told something's rare do you think that it means there's fewer treatments do you do you worry about what that actually means for you I think yeah yeah when you're told something's a bit rare and you're rare within that rareness as well because once I, once I started looking things up I realized that MDS predominantly hits older men and here I was a young woman so when I tried to find someone else to talk to there was no support group back then there was the aplastic anemia had a, a support group and they had tagged MDS onto there but it was very much tagged on and through that I found one other person and she was 20 years older. I was 35, she was 55. I lived in London, she lived in Derby. And we met and chatted because we were the only two women with MGS. There weren't anyone else back then that we could find. 
now it's very different with social media and groups and the ways things are set up but also having patient support groups like leukemia care like mds uk that kind of thing makes such a difference and that's what really supports people to get the reality of what's going on and to find out if you if you are worried because you've got something that's rare so therefore maybe there's not so much treatment out there it's the patient groups that can tell you where the best doctors are that are dealing with your specific type what the latest treatments are what the questions you can ask what is the norm in this situation and and that kind of support is absolutely invaluable i found the webinars really interesting again because i think of the lack of information you're given during treatment and if you are given information often at the time it just it's just in one ear out the other so at the time i think i didn't really take in a lot of the information and my husband did and so after treatment i actually went back to your youtube channel and watched a lot of your webinars most recently there was one on acute lymphoblastic leukemia which i found really useful leukemia cares informational webinars are about the topics that matter to you whether that be the current news in covid the latest developments in treatment and much more you can hear from patients and healthcare professionals alike providing insight on all things leukemia Watching it live even lets you post questions directly to those panels. Find out when our next webinar is scheduled by heading on over to our social media or our website. Or to watch those you've already missed, check out our YouTube channel. I noticed, uh, again, when I was reading before we came on, that you, you do talk a lot about advocating for yourself and working out you know the right way of doing things and it struck me one of the things you said in particular was you sometimes go to a center of excellence or you did at the time of the last sharing your story with us and you sometimes go to a local hospital and that works for you I mean how long did it take you to to work out what sort of things worked for you if that makes sense how long did it take you to get to a position where you're like right I need this or have you always been that person that sort of just works those things out I, I genuinely I'm 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 someone that I I suppose that to coin a phrase a, a reflective practitioner I've always been a reflective person um, and so no matter what the situation whether it's a work situation or or personal to me I, I will reflect on it and think is this working is this the right thing and I will try to find the best thing for me and for the family and, that. and going to the local hospital when things are not that serious was brilliant for a number of years and they did some supportive things as well uh, along the way when when there was needed but when it started to get more serious it was definitely the centre of excellence that took over and I'm really lucky that the centre of excellence is only an hour away from me difficulty is if it's rush hour traffic um, <laughs> in London that's a bit of a nightmare because you can't go on public transport but yeah, and, 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 and again, I, I know from my, where because I do support people online and if anyone asks those sorts of questions, very often well-meaning local hospital consultants, they might see an odd case of MDS, whereas a centre of excellence will see hundreds and you, you try to encourage always people to get an, an additional opinion from a centre of excellence. And that, that way, most, most local hospitals now, I think, will work with 
big hospitals that have got that. Some people, sadly, still fall foul of someone's ego getting in the way. So someone will not be happy if you ask for a second opinion, which is everybody's right to ask. Um, so some of those, uh, you know, um, consultants that maybe don't have loads of experience might, but it, even if they are a bit frosty with you about it, I think people should stick to their guns because they are entitled to have that additional, uh, you know, opinion from uh, a world-renowned place, really. And we've, we're lucky in this country that we've got several. Yeah, I think, I mean, my view on this is that everybody has a limit to their knowledge and yes. it's, it's not a personal criticism on you, but haematology is a massive, massive area and so many different, I mean, leukemia types, not, not just, not even at the, at the, not at the blood cancer level. I think even MDS, I think, yeah. is categorised technically into 12, 13, 14 different illnesses. So, yeah. yeah it's a very complex disease, actually. Yeah. Um, and a very complex discipline as well, haematology. Yeah. So a generalist is never going to be as good as the specialist in the, not, not for any fault of their own, because that's not what they're expected to do. Yeah, and I think it, it's, I think it's a change of culture, possibly that's needed to better support patients. And I don't think the NHS is really set up that well to facilitate that as much as we would like. But I'm glad it's worked for you. I, I assume it's worked for you since you speak so highly of the of sharing that with others. Is it something that you're still going through? Still doing that share? Uh, well, I do, but it's in a very um, limited way because the the local hospital is actually five minutes walk from my house. Where um, so it's very local. So if an ambulance turned up, it would be there that they would take me to. So it's important to keep a connection with them. And but the consultant there is really good because what she does, she phones me. Now I think it's about twice a year, three times a year, something like that, and just to check where I'm at, and is there anything she needs to do? What does she need to update her notes about? And, and she says, Kings are taking very good care of you. I'm very happy to leave it to there. But if you need anything from me, just phone any time. And, and I think that's because that, I don't want to be going there to be seen in outpatients to have a checkup when I'm being seen at Kings. That, that, that kind of defeats the object, really. But they do need to know what my current situation is just in case I do become acutely unwell and end up in an ambulance there. So it's that it's, it's, it's keeping that balance in order to make sure that you get the best possible care no matter where you end up. What are you planning to achieve this year? Does it include free falling from 15,000 feet? Maybe flying on a zip wire is more your thing. Join Team LC this year, raising vital funds as well as your pulse rate. We'll support you all the way in raising the money. The question is, are you brave enough to take on the challenge? Simply search online for Leukaemia Care Zipwire or Leukaemia Care Skydive to find out more. So we talked quite a lot about that first, I don't know how many years it was, but the active monitoring period. And then eventually you came to have a transplant in 2016. So how did you end up in, in that position? Because transplant is quite a big procedure how what made you and your doctors decide that was the best route for you I went to Mallorca on holiday with my family and my sister's family so there was 13 of us away and I, I picked up 
sepsis that then went to septic shock. And I ended up in intensive care. And the family were told that my organs were failing and I wasn't going to make it. So they were all obviously very traumatised by what they witnessed there. Fortunately, the Spanish health system is a really good health system and I had good insurance. So they saved my life. That was brilliant. And then I came back and then I got another infection that was really, really, really painful. And I was in King's and I was lying on my bed in the fetal position in absolute agony. And bearing in mind what I said earlier, that I, I grit my teeth and get on with it. But this was, this was a pain that you could not escape from. It, you know, they, Palliative care had been out and put, put in a syringe driver and everything. It was just awful. And the consultant came in and saw me like normally when I'm in hospital, I get up, I get dressed, I have a shower. I, I don't want to be, you know, out of a, you know, totally in my pajamas and in bed. I'm, I'm a very much a doer kind of, you know, give myself some routine. And so for them to come in and find me just lying in bed like that, groaning, and um, the consultant said to me, you know, what, what do you want, Kez? And I said, I want to go to Dignitas. I've had enough. I've really had it. I cannot do this anymore. And because I think at that stage I'd had sepsis about 10, 11 times, you know, been really quite seriously ill and had all the implications of the treatment that you have to have for that as well. And and, so, and this, this was a, a, an abscess that had formed a fistula and it was the, the worst pain I'd ever experienced on this time. And that's why I said enough. And so he just gently put his hand on my shoulder and he said, I think we're at the point where we just need to do the transplant now, because if we leave you, this is going to keep happening. The bouts are getting shorter. You know, you're getting sepsis more often. And you, one of these days, you're not going to bounce back. So maybe we need to put the transplant in place. So they'd mentioned it before that day, but they sort of said it, it was too stressful or, yeah. No, what they, what they said was uh, they, they'd mentioned it right at the beginning and, and asked me to fill in a form about my family and who, you know, did I have any siblings and all of that in, in terms of, and I asked what that was that about and they said that was in case I needed to transplant. But so I just filled in the form kind of thing, but never really thought about it. But then I, I picked up that information as I was going through that that's more where I was heading. I realised that was what was where I was going without them actually saying it, I think, in many respects. And I sometimes would say to them, what, what, are, what are the criteria? And basically, the chances of you dying are greater if you don't have it, then if you do have it, basically, that's how they make the decision because not everyone survives a transplant. So it has to be dire circumstances before you get to that point. Because and, and, and what they're really doing is they're half killing you. They're poisoning you to, to within an inch of your life in order to, you know, bring you back, kind of into uh, reset you as best as they can. So you have, you have to have an inner strength and resilience to get through that. But, yeah, that, I think what they felt was that there was no point leaving me 
to my own devices any longer because at some point I was just going to pack up. My body wouldn't have carried on. So this was the only way to give me some some sort of possible cure or relief. And and did it work? Because I think you did have some significant side effects of the transplant. But I mean, this, I guess, is the point where I say, how are things now post-transplant? You know, you read all these books before you go into it, but there was a bit of me that said, well, what's the point in reading this? Because I haven't got a choice. What, what choice is there? Do I really want to know all this or shall I just wait and experience it? And, you know, it's a bit like when they give you a new drug. Do you look up the side effects or do you just wait and see if something happens? But I did read them because they asked you to read them. And the process of taking consent for the transplant takes half a day because it's so... There's so many things that can go wrong that can kill you that you have to understand. But even though I had all that, and even though I've been alongside people, uh, alongside the Facebook group and working with MGS UK and been around long enough to have picked up quite a lot of knowledge, it still didn't prepare me for how bloody awful I felt. And um, and since then, I've had GVHD, graft versus host disease. Um, so my sister's cells, very strong, did really good job, got, got rid of the cancer cells, but carried on attacking all my good cells as well. And that's continued. I'm now five years post-transplant. My lung capacity is very poor. I used to be a chorister and sing in cathedrals and stuff. I struggle now because I don't have enough breath to be able to do that. I have to use a mobility scooter because my I've got a lot of muscle wastage and muscle weakness where the um, GVHD has got into my muscles and, and joints, uh, lungs, gut as well. I've had loads of steroids in order to try and beat this. I've been on steroids basically since 2014, so that means my bones are fragile and I've had some fractures in my neck and spine. But out of every out of all those things which are very debilitating and life-changing for me, the thing that was the hardest for me was that I lost a significant amount of my hearing. So I now wear bilateral hearing aids. And um, as I said, the, the, the process of taking consent takes all morning to warn you of the side effects. No one ever said about there's a possible chance that you, your hearing will be affected. That that because it's a small chance. I think maybe that's one of the ones they didn't pick up on, or maybe you know it, it was just glossed over. I don't know. I, I I didn't come across it anywhere. It what it is because the um, chemo is so toxic, and then also because some of the when, you, when I've had infections, some of the um, antibiotics are also, they're called uh, autotoxic, something like that. It means that they can impact on your hearing, basically, damage your hearing. And so if I take my hearing aids out now at night, I don't hear anything, which is lovely. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, sure that's nice at night. <laughs> but it does mean that I don't hear things like someone at the door and, you know, and, and, and again, that 
that stopped me singing for two years before my lung lungs packed up because I couldn't hear what was going on and that but not only could I not sing but I couldn't join in with ordinary conversation with people I felt and I'm a very sociable person I need that so and it was ages before I realized exactly what the problem was because you've got a bit of like chemo brain as it is and you're not quite sure what's going on and I was thinking I wasn't concentrating properly and that's why I wasn't hearing what was being said but then I spoke to the sister in the outpatient department when I was having a top up of something. And I said, you know, does any of this process affect your ears at all? And she said, why are you struggling? And I said, yeah, she said, yes, it does. And you need to see someone. So, and, and now, so I've, I'm classified as moderate to severe hearing loss, which was a real blow. Yeah. Real blow. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't help but sort of compare that to where you were pre-transplant they they said you know at risk of of dying here do you ever sort of wonder whether it was it was worth it in some ways which sounds sounds horrible to say but you know quality of life in, is is important as well as, as surviving I do believe that quality of life is much better than quantity actually and you know it's it's not number of breaths you take that you measure life by but the, the moments that take your breath away you know those special moments and, and and all of that so I'm I'm not worried about death and dying at all that you know I've dealt with my mortality that's that's something that we all have to go you know 100% we're all going in the same direction but at one point the consultant said to me do you regret having a transplant would you do it again? And I said, probably not. And that's where I was at that stage. But then I've got four beautiful grandchildren. They're 18, 16, 14, and 11. So I've seen them grow. And, you know, the oldest is just about to take his driving test. And, you know, the 14 year old's in love. <laughs> for the first time you know I've got a girlfriend <laughs> and the 11 year old Molly she is the other three are boys Molly Molly is is the girl the youngest at 11 and she's going on 26 but you know I haven't been able to hug them in all this time because of COVID and we're normally really close but she sends me videos and I've been encouraging her to do a forward flip because she's quite yeah she gets a sport from me basically she's very sporty and they've got a sunken trampoline in their garden so I've been telling her how to do it even though I can't see her and she sent me a video of her doing the forward flip now that's got to melt your heart when you get something like and she was so the, the joy on her face at having achieved this was brilliant and if I hadn't had the transplant I wouldn't have seen that so I can see that you know I, I've, I've gained an awful lot from having it as well and you know, the joy of being with them and seeing them grow has been absolutely beautiful and I wouldn't want to hurt them either. But it it is a very big decision to take. And if quality of life is really important to you or if you're not a resilient person, that makes, that all of that should factor into your decisions. You know, life for life's sake, isn't always the best thing 
make it make it make any decision and a really informed decision don't be frightened to ask those awful questions that there's a bit of you that doesn't want to know the answer be brave ask all those questions because that's the only way you can make a really good decision that is right for you not for anyone else but right for you it's fascinating how you sort of gone from thinking it was a, a regretting it to reflecting on it more you certainly yeah definitely a reflective person it's, it's really fascinating yeah. <laughs> absolutely yeah I mean you touched on COVID how has it been for you I you know you've been sort of shielding as as many of our blood cancer patients have have you found it a real struggle at that time it's 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 awful because like I said to you I'm a really sociable person and that's the way I cope with life is by doing things and and you know being alongside people and uh, as a chaplain you're you're there for people of all faiths and none and that's the way I've always lived my life as well. Just try and be there for everyone. Human beings fascinate me. I love being with all human beings, you know. And COVID has kind of locked me away for two years, well, a bit more than two years. And I understand why. I mean, right at the very beginning of all this, my, my poor cousin, her, her dad went into hospital with breathing difficulties, so they put him on the COVID ward. This was in Nottingham. It turned out he didn't have COVID, but he had a heart problem. So they sent him home waiting for a stent to be put in. But of course, by then he'd picked up COVID. He then went back into hospital, died. Two weeks later, my aunt died because he'd given it to the family when he came home. So we know as a family the price people pay for, you know, with this illness. And I know that even though I've had my transplant and even though I've not got cancer anymore, I am still really, really susceptible. I don't deal with infection. Every time I pick up some infection, my counts bottom out again. And at the moment I'm dealing, I've got a fungal infection in my lungs and some pneumonia. That's why I've been in Kings recently. I only, only recently got out. And so, I know that I need to keep safe. I know I need to wear my mask, but I still, my mental health says you need people, you need people. So you, you try to engage with people in a different way. So via Zoom, but then you get really tired from too much screen work. In the, in the summer, it's great. You can go out in the garden, but in the winter, how do you do it? And, you know, so we've been trying to build shelters outside. And I like my chimney. Like New Year's Eve, we went out and we lit the chimney and we sat around the chimney outside. And, and so the other thing is my family and friends have been willing to come with me and do that. They've been willing to go and sit in a cold garden or to <laughs> smell of smoke from the, from the log burner, you know. So you have to find ways around it. But what's really hard for all of us who are still shielding, is the indefinite nature of it. At this stage, you know, I was listening on the in the car on the radio that you don't have to wear masks on public transport from tomorrow. And where does that leave us? Where does it leave us? I know that if I get an infection, I'm in serious trouble, even with the monoclonal antibodies which would be given um, to someone like me in priority need but my my 
consultant knows me well enough to know that if I pick something up, it's not going to be straightforward because I've never been straightforward. So she says, quite rightly, carry on being very cautious. But I can't never touch someone else. I can't, you know, I miss my, I miss my grandkids. I miss being able to sit around the table and have a meal with them and chat about how their day went. And, you know, it's, it, I just hope that the scientists find a breakthrough that helps the Forgotten Shielders. Because at the moment, we can't even have the antibody test to see if we've got any immunity because it's too expensive. It's not a routine test because it's not just about antibodies, of course. It's about T cells as well. And that's more expensive to test how many T cells you've got and blah, blah, blah. So, and, and again, even if you've got some, it doesn't say how you'd respond should you be overwhelmed by an infection. So I don't know where it's going to end, but I do struggle sometimes with the, it just stretching on into the future. It just, it's just this, this road goes on forever for us. It's just not stopping. And I'm longing for something to change, but I don't know what it will, when it will, what will, anything. But I can't take risks because I, I see it in my daughter's face when she comes and she stands at the door sometimes. No, 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 I'm not coming in because I went in the supermarket. And, you know, so they're afraid to give and You have to deal with their anxiety as well as, you know, your own needs. Um, it's horrible. It's just, just horrible for people. And for people that don't have a garden, that live in flats, and a lot of Londoners do live in flats now. And I think, gosh, that must be so hard to have no outside space to see someone in if you're in the same boat as me. So I do count my blessings. I don't, you know, I don't just see the horror and the un unpleasant side of it, but I do just wish that there was an end in sight. Absolutely. I think you've summarised the feelings of so many people with what you've just said. And, and the uncertainty point came out really quickly once, well, I, I suppose, if we did one po podcast about shielding about a month into the pandemic and then we did it a, a couple more times and uncertainty just kept coming up. And I can imagine it's very challenging to not know. The like we were saying with the active monitoring thing, you want to know what's at the end of the road, don't you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, because of the job I've done, I've, I've been alongside lots of people who've had bad news. Once they get the bad news, they deal with it. What when you talk to them when they when they have their initial test and they're waiting for the biopsy to come back, that waiting period is when they're pulling their hair out. That's when they need a lot of TLC because everything is jittery inside them. That's how I describe it. Because it's like they're on edge the whole time waiting for that news. Once you get the news, you'll deal with it. Yeah. So when you're just waiting, that's the worst thing for anyone. And that's what we're all doing. We're just waiting. Just waiting for something to shift, something to give. But we've got no control over that. And we've got even less control now because nobody has, COVID's over, didn't you hear? It's over. You know, no one has to wear masks anymore. It's like, what? You know, so that, that means that I can't go into supermarkets now, even if I wanted to. You know, I can't go on public transport, even if I wanted to. But we'll do what we can to make sure people like you aren't forgotten, Kez, as much as, much as we can. 
Thank you, thank you, Charlotte. I know Leukemia Care and a, a lot of the blood cancer charities are really jumping up and down about this um, because it, it really is affecting on people's lives and their well-being in an enormous way. There's going to be a huge backlash eventually, and I should imagine there's also going to be an awful lot of agoraphobics created during this time where people suddenly become afraid to go outside, actually. At least I'm not afraid to go outside. At least I've still got that. Uh, you know, resilience within me, but it must be hard for those that struggle in that way. Because I could talk all day, um, but unfortunately we've come to the end of the time we've got allotted. Thank you so much for, for chatting to us. It, it, you've had some really poignant things, I'm sure many people listening, regardless of what their diagnosis is or no diagnosis, will find really helpful. So thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome. It's always lovely to talk to you as well, Charlotte. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leukemia Chatters. For more information and support from Leukemia Care, go to our website, leukemiacare.org.uk or call our helpline on 080 88 010 444. See you next month. <laughs>